truth to flow from Rich here by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for what you have put into him over the years and what he's able to impart and pour out because of your goodness, because of your revelation to him, because of his relationship with you. Father, would you um, just wreck us with your presence, wreck us with your truth. Blow through this place with new revelation, new um, insight into who you really are. We love you, Lord, and we just want to open our hearts to receive your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, wow, wow. Well, that sure was fun, wasn't it? Come on, that was amazing. <clears throat> I just want to say a great big just thanks for, um, for having us and for just welcoming us. Um, you guys have just been so, uh, so kind and letting us minister and just be a part of your family. That's just amazing, and we're so grateful for that. Thank you so much. Um, let's see if I can get everything organized here. Um, so uh, oh, I also want to say just a great big thanks to our friends up here who have been so kind to us, and uh, they always say so many nicer things than I can ever think of to say about them, and I feel bad about that. <laughs> Um, but they've been amazing, and uh, they have been such good friends to us. And honestly, I think, I think probably the best thing I could say is that they have always believed in us more than we believed in us, which is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, so, so thanks, guys. We appreciate that a ton. And uh, j- just curious, uh, how many folks, uh, no shame or guilt here, I'm just trying to figure something out. How many have not, were not able to be here last night and hear some of the story so just, oh, well, there, one by one, hands start popping up. Okay, so, um, so last night, uh, my wife, this is my wife Danielle right here in the front, um, we shared a, a good bit of our story, and we kind of tag-teamed, and we shared it together, and uh, my talk for this morning, uh, what, I'll, what I'm going to do is just touch on a few of those points, uh, because I want to kind of lean into some other things, and, and kind of show you a little bit further from Scripture, and some other things um, what God was doing in our lives, and what I also think God might be doing in your life. So, uh, so I'm going to do that. So forgive me, those of you who've been here, who were here last night. If, a, a little repeat, but I'll try to share a few different things, uh, and then we'll dive into some other stuff. Is that all right? Yeah. All right, let me just pray, all right? Jesus, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for this time of worship that we've just had. And we just praise you, Jesus. We praise you in this place. And God, I just thank you that I can fly to the other side of the world and find people who love you just like we love you, Lord. And we can be family. And it doesn't matter what we look like, what we sound like, where we came from, where we're going, Lord. Uh, We know that unity and that bond in the spirit, and that is amazing. And I just praise you for that, God. And I pray your blessing upon our time this morning, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, so my wife and I, we, we were pastoring um, two different churches in New Jersey, which, which is about an hour away from New York City, if you're not familiar with the United States, uh, about an hour outside of New York. And, uh, you know, the first church we were at was, was conservative and it was religious, and that was it. So we had a good time there. I was a youth pastor and associate pastor. Um, in our second church, we had left that church to go out and plant another church about maybe 30 minutes away. And um, we really felt this thing stirring inside of us, this Holy Spirit thing that God wanted us to go after more. But honestly, we didn't know what that looked like. 
because all of our experience had been in very conservative churches, and we just weren't sure. So we had ideas, and we'd read books, and hey, we probably even went to a conference or two. <laughs> but, but our experience, honestly, was very limited. And uh, so we were trying to be this word and power church, which, which valued, you know, the word of God and what God had to say to us, but was also going after the power of the spirit and all the things that, that he was doing. And to be honest, you know, we saw lots of great things. We saw breakthroughs. We saw healings and prophetic words and, and God moved. But at the same time, uh, a lot of our ministry was probably based more on our energy and efforts than, than should have been. You know, um, we, we, uh, we thought we were responsible for everything, and we're not. And so what that led to was that led to us being very tired and very burned out and very worn out. Has anybody ever felt those feelings? Okay, don't all have to raise your hands. And um, so, uh, you know, the performance thing of, of I've got to perform, I, I've, got to, I've got to be everything to everybody in the church. And when you're a church of, you know, about this size, pastors, that's a lot of responsibilities, isn't it? <laughs> when you've got to be the best preacher and, and they can go on uh, online or TV any day and hear amazing preachers, and you've got to be the best counselor and they can go all over and find amazing counselors, and you've got to be the best this and this and this, and it's like, whoa, I'm not the best at everything. So we, we were tired, and we were worn, and that's where we're at. And um, after, about, after about eight years in that church plant, um, I was tired. I was worn out. I was literally begging God to, to move us, to, to send us some other place. And in the span of about a week, I got three very clear prophetic words. One was just me praying with God. I just heard him say to me very clearly, you've successfully completed everything I've asked you to do. And we went to our counselor friend. She said the exact same words to us. And then a prophetic intercessor, our lead intercessor at our church showed up and said, you know, you're free and you're released to go. And so uh, we knew that, that our time was up. And we thought, surely God has all these amazing things in store for us next. And I went, I, we told this last night, I want to go into all of it, but went to my buddy's church and thought I was going to go there. And my wife bawled her eyes out the whole time. And, you know, I'm not the most in touch emotionally guy. But I knew something was wrong. <laughs> so we didn't go to Boston. And uh, so eight months transpire after we had resigned from our church and everything was good with our church. Everything was fine, but we had left there. And eight months of just waiting, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? And then in one day, we got three different phone calls, all prophetic words, all telling us to get to California. And California didn't mean anything to us except Bethel Church in Redding, California. We didn't care about L.A. We didn't care about Hollywood. But we did have this, this, this attraction, this, this thing drawing us uh, to Redding, California to see what this Bethel Church thing was all about. Because I'd read some books and I'd been to some conferences and I'd heard them speak. Um, and they were just doing these amazing things. And so we were so curious. And so um, long story. Uh, and, you know, we told about this last night. But... Um, we eventually, uh, we eventually get to Bethel. Uh, for those of you, again, not from our country, from where we live in New Jersey to California is about five days drive with two kids in junior high and a dog who's a big lab, weighs about 80, 90 pounds, who had just been sprayed by a skunk. So it was quite a fun ride. Enjoyed most of it. And... Uh, 
so, so we get to this new place, and man, we, we are just on this faith high, okay? You know, we're on this Abraham journey where, where God said to Abraham, you know, you know, pack up your stuff and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham's like, where is it? And he goes, I'll show you. Start walking that way. And that's what we were on, but we, we were full of faith, and, you know, we come into this school, this, this Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. We didn't even know there was a Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, but we figured God's brought us out here, maybe we're supposed to go to this thing, and it was this bizarre experience for me. So when I went to school, there were probably about, I don't know, maybe, maybe 500 students in what we call our first-year program at that time. And um, I had this bizarre experience, because, you see, you know, I've been to college, and I, I've been to seminary, which is three years uh, of after college. <laughs> and I'd been a pastor for 16 years. And, and I'm in this school with, with predominantly 20 and 30-year-olds, to be honest. Okay, and I'm older than that. And, um, and so, <laughs> you know, they would get up there and teach Bible and have us try to do these Bible things. And it was like, it was like grammar school. It was like elementary school for me. It was like easy peasy, no problem. I could do that in my sleep. But then they would get into this supernatural stuff, and all of a sudden, I felt like I was like the child, because all these 20-year-olds could prophesy and have encounters with heaven and do stuff, and I just sat there and was like, oh my goodness, where have I been my whole life? Look at these kids go. They just prophesy at a moment's notice. They, they just have these encounters with heaven. They see angels. They see stuff happening all over the place, and I'm just like, wow. So I had this bizarre you understand what I'm saying? Some places it was, I was so easy, and then others I was like, where am I? What planet did I just step into? Um, so I was trying to grow in these challenges, and um, on a practical level, you know, we, we go out to Redding, California, and, you know, on this faith journey, and I just, we just believed, well, surely if God has, has called us out there, he's going to take care of everything. Isn't that what God does? You know, he just, he just takes care of everything. And so we got out there, and I couldn't find a job anywhere. I mean, I'm, I'm at places, I'm at the stores applying for the job for the guy who stays up all night and stocks the shelves for the customers who will show up the next morning, and I couldn't get that job. I mean, I have, I have seven years of, I have a master's degree and 16 years ministry experience. I couldn't find a job anywhere. And this was brutal. And my wife told her story how all she had to do was walk into the store, didn't even fill out the paperwork, and they said, do you want a job? And she gets hired. She was mad at God. I was mad at her. So <laughs> I had applied everywhere, and nobody wanted me. So anyway, um, <laughs> my first paid job in Redding, California, was I worked as a custodian for our fall conference. It's called the Open Heavens Conference. It was the only job I could... F oh, caretaker. Yeah, thank you for translating. Um, I was the caretaker. Um, in the church. And uh, so, so we, you know, our church is fairly large. We've got multiple bathrooms to take care of and floors to be vacuumed and chairs to be stacked and on and on and on. That was the only job I could find. And as the year went on, um, I eventually became part-time as a caretaker. <laughs> and then that summer, it was hilarious because I'd done the whole first year of school. And I thought, okay, God, I mean, this is the only door you've opened. So surely you're going to give me a full-time job over the summer. And I went to the, the boss of, of that department, the maintenance department. And I said, hey, I'm going to be here. I'm here for the summer. I really need full-time full work. I'm available, ready, and willing. Do you have a job for me? And he goes, no. 
I'm like, God, <laughs> like I've applied everywhere in town, and now this job, I can't even, not even going to be able to work for the summer. Like, you got to figure something out, Jesus, <laughs> because we are not making it. We're not making it. And um, so it was funny, though, the next week after the boss had told me no, one of the other guys called me and said, hey, do you paint? I'm like, yes, I'm a terrible painter. Um, <laughs> yes, I do. And they said, would you like to come to work this week and paint? I said, yes, I'll be there. What time? So I worked all week painting. And he goes, you available next week? And I said, yes, I am. And I worked all that week painting. And I said, is there anything going on next week? He goes, well, you're painting, aren't you? I said, yes. <laughs> I worked the whole summer full time where they had no job painting. And God provided. So, um, so I, you know, I, I'm... The second year I was there, I went to second year school, and now I'm serving as a caretaker. The third year there, I, I go to our third year of school, which is a, a mentorship, an internship kind of a thing, and I'm still the caretaker. Um, the fourth year there, I'm still the caretaker, but now I've, I've really climbed the ladder over there, okay? I'm the head caretaker. Was that the, like, I, I am just whoosh. I am just climbing the ladder at Bethel Church, man. Who knows what's going to happen next? And uh, the fifth year there, I'm still the head caretaker, okay? And I'm actually, I'm actually co-head caretaker with this 20-year-old surfer dude with long blonde hair. And he, he is a good friend of mine, but man, can he drive a boy nuts. <laughs> so, um, he's one of my best buddies. I would say that if he were here. Um, so, God, God, I'm, I'm saying... You know, God, I've, I've got a college degree. I, I've got a master's degree. I've got 16 years of pastoral ministry experience. I've got three years of Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry experience. And are you telling me that that qualifies me to be the caretaker? And God's like, yep. And, and I felt terrible. I felt terrible about myself. I felt like, you know, do you, ever, do you ever go into your pantry or your cupboard, you know, looking for the food, and you find very in the back, that, like you forgot, like a can of something, a can of beans or something. Like, you know how it's covered with dust? And you're like, whoa, how old is this thing? That's what I felt like. Okay? I was so far on, on the back of God's shelf that he had forgot that I existed. He just didn't even think that I was, you know, around anymore. And um, I still was, but he wasn't thinking of me. And that's how I felt. And, uh, and it was a bad feeling. And I had to work through all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's some real challenges to who you are when, when you go from, from there to there, you know. And Anyway. So um, l l let me explain from a biblical perspective, what I think was going on in my life and my wife's life, okay? So um, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Are you there? Galatians chapter 4. So it goes like this, uh, verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. 
The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the, time, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit about um, Greek and Hebrew culture after I open my water bottle. Um, so the Greeks, it was not uncommon for them to, uh, to bring a tutor into the household to train the children. Often it was a slave, probably a very educated slave, like the Romans would get a Greek slave who was trained in philosophy and mathematics and all these different things, and they would actually train the children in the household. That's not how it worked uh, in the Hebrew culture. In the Hebrew culture... Um, children were considered children, basically, until about the age of, let's say, 12 or 13. So in the modern setting, uh, you'll see Jewish children go through uh, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. You're familiar with those? So uh, bar is, is son, bat is daughter, and mitzvah is commandment. So what that means is your bar mitzvah is you become a son of the commandment or a son of the law. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a full-grown member of Jewish society. What that means is you're old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. You're old enough to be accountable to the Old Testament law. That's what that means, right? So it starts around age 13. Um, then, from 13, you, you, take, you, you kind of start to move out of childhood, and you become an apprentice to your father and whatever your father's business is, okay? So if, you're, if, you're part, if your father works in uh, leather uh, goods and works with leather, then you are going to go and be an apprentice in what he does, his trade, okay? Whatever it might be, that's, that's what you're going to do. And what you do is you learn the family business. So if your father's a carpenter, you learn how to work with wood. If your father works with stone, you learn how to work with stone. If he's a merchant, you get it, right? You become an apprentice to the father. Um, during this time period, you don't get paid. You don't get your inheritance, but it's as if you own the entire business. Isn't that interesting? Um, during this time, you're supposed to do one thing. You're supposed to submit to your father and learn what he already knows. So you are, you are coming underneath your father and learning. Um, we say, uh, you know, submission. If you think about that word, um, it breaks down into two parts. It breaks down into sub and mission. Well, what's sub? You know, sub, submarine, something that goes under the water. So sub means to go under, but to go under what? The mission of somebody else. So submission is not this, this passive, I don't do anything kind of attitude. Submission is a very powerful thing where I take, I take all of my strength, I take all of my energy, I take all that I bring to the table, but I get underneath the mission of somebody else and I push up their mission. That's what submission is. 
So the son submits to the father and gives all of his youthful energy into that business. Now, uh, I don't know about, about your culture, but in our American culture, you know, uh, kids start becoming independent from home sometime around 18, 19, 20, 21. It's about the same, right? So, you know, they, they want to go off. They want to do their own thing. Uh, that's not how it worked in the Hebrew culture. When you turned 18, uh, the dad doesn't give you the business. Do you know how long you have to stay as an apprentice in the Hebrew culture? Until about age 30. So you start at age about 13 and all the way to 30, and you're doing one thing, you're submitting to your father and learning the family business. That's all you do during this time frame. Now, um, at, at about age 30, uh, the father is then going to turn over the entire business to his son. The father is going to retire and basically going to live off the interest of the business, but now the son becomes the owner of the business, runs the business, starts to take an income from the business, and, and, and provides for himself. So, so this is very interesting um, on, on several different levels. Um, you know, let's think about Jesus for a second. Um, Aside from the Christmas story where Jesus doesn't really say anything, what's the first time in the Bible where we actually hear Jesus saying or doing anything? Temple. He's at the temple. And how old was he about? Twelve years old. And what did he, what did he say he was doing? When, now, it's a slightly different culture when mom and dad have been at a festival in town and left and have been walking away from the town for three days and didn't realize their son wasn't there. Okay, that's a different culture than, in my culture, three hours. We're like, what is, where, what's going on? But different world. And um, so they come racing back. They find him. And what does Jesus say? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business or in my father's house at age 12 or 13? When's the next time we hear about Jesus? Not until he's 30 years old. When he's 30 years old, that's when the baptism happens and he begins his ministry. Um, so uh, I, the pattern that Jesus fo follows is exactly the pattern that a uh, Hebrew boy would have followed because at 30, the heavenly father handed over to Jesus the business, the family business. What's the family business? Saving and healing and delivering people. It now became Jesus. Before that, he, had not, he was not involved during on an earthly life. I'm not talking about an eternity. But God hands this over to him. Um, there's some interesting things here that, that happen. Uh, wait, let me see. I just skipped something here. Um, you know, when he was baptized, what's the voice from heaven say? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. What had Jesus done to earn the approval of the Father? Basically nothing. Just pause for a second. Jesus, he hadn't saved anybody. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't died on the cross. He hadn't done any ministry. And the Father says, that's my son. That's my boy. I'm proud of him. Think about that for a second. He didn't have to do anything to earn approval, did he? We'll come back to that. Um, we, 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 see, we see this um, play out with the, the story of the prodigal son. So, so what does the prodigal son do 
The prodigal son asked for his inheritance, his share of the family um, money, whatever. In, uh, he asked for it early. The father was under no obligation to give anything to that young man, but because of the love of the father, he actually did that. So he gives this to the son. In fact, what do we all think prodigal means? We think it means the prodigal, the, 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 the reckless, the lost, the wanderer, right? Um, I would suggest to you, if you actually look up the word prodigal, that it's not the son who was prodigal, it was actually the father who was prodigal, because the word prodigal means recklessly extravagant. And it was out of the reckless extravagance of the father that he gave stuff to the son that he had no uh, actual right to have. And he went off and ruined it and wasted it, and we, we, you know all the whole story. Um, a couple other little things to, just to tie in here. Um, when, when, when these men in the Hebrew culture would, uh, would get their inheritance, like they, they wouldn't get married. Like around in our culture, like 20 years old, 25 years old, people start getting married, right? Isn't that kind of how it works? Um, well, you would never do that in the Hebrew culture because you're still an apprentice and you're not in the business. So you only get your business at age 30, which means you wouldn't even think about getting married until then. Most of the time, you're going to wait 10 or 20 years until you've actually been functioning in your business and you've built this thing up. So that means that Hebrew men didn't get married until they were 30, 40, or 50 years old. But guess who they married? 15 and 16-year-old girls. Now that's weird. <laughs> but that's the way their culture functioned. Okay? Now, women, just think for a second. How much influence are you going to have in the home if, if, if you're a 16-year-old girl and you're married to a 50-year-old man who's been running a business on his own for 20 years in the community? You're going to have no influence in the home. You're going to have no voice. You're going to have nothing to say. But that's another topic. So, um, do it. No, not today. <laughs> I, I teach a whole class. It's about 10 or 12 hours on women in ministry and what the Bible says about that, but not today. So, um, so you know, let, just think with me a second about the Christmas story. Um, you know, at the beginning of the Christmas story, we see, we see Mary and Joseph, right, and the donkey, and all kinds of, you know, it's cute, the, po the Christmas cards, right, um, and they, um, they go to the, they go to the, 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 there's no room where, no room at the inn, right, so they have to stay out in the barn, right? Um, I'm not trying to ruin Christmas for you, but that's, that's, that's probably just not true, okay? Because what the Bible says, what the Bible says was that there was no room for them, and the Greek word is kataluma, kataluma, which is actually the upper room, the exact same word that Jesus uses when he says to the disciples, go prepare the Passover meal in the upper room, exact same word. And then when we think about how, how uh, homes were built in that day, they were two-story homes, okay? And so the upper story would be where everybody would live, the people. The lower story would be where you would put the animals. So A, you would, you would keep the animals from the outside, from, from wild animals, from thieves. But also, has anybody ever been in a barn in the winter? Nobody. Well, thank you. One. Um, I have. Uh, it's warm, Animals provide all kinds of heat. So, by, yes, stinky heat, but still warm. Um, so you bring all these animals in. They provide all kinds of heat. And so now think about one other thing. 
um, in Middle Eastern culture, is it based on uh, going to a hotel or motel, or is the culture based on family and relationships? It's based on family and relationships. So never in, in their wildest dreams would a Middle Eastern family go, go to a hotel, especially, what were they going? Mary and Joseph were going to their hometown for the census where they had relatives staying. So probably what actually happened is Mary and Joseph went to one of their relatives' homes. There was no room for them upstairs because everybody else had gotten there first. And so they simply were downstairs in a manger. Yes, there were animals there, but there were aunts and grandmas and all kinds of people around to help with the birth of this child. Just like, what did I say? Aunts. Is that better? Aunts. Aunties. Sorry. We thought about having Nick or Jez stand here and translate the entire talk. We thought that might take too long. So there were probably all kinds of women around who helped with the birth of baby Jesus. They were not all by themselves. And it was very normal and natural, just like it would have been uh, in that day. Um, the funny thing is, we don't hear much about Joseph after the Christmas story, do we? Why do we think that might be? Well, if he was a 50-year-old man and married a 16-year-old girl, Jesus is, doesn't start his ministry until he's 30 years old, maybe Joseph's time was up. It's very reasonable and possible. I can't prove it, but it's reasonable and possible. So... Um, Oh, just one other thing. How, okay, I've got to keep an eye on my time here. Well, I, I'm a Bible teacher, so I got all these little, I got all kinds of little useless information all over the place. Um, so who shows up at the house uh, and brings all these gifts? Christmas story. It's not a trick question. The wise men. Well, shepherds first, but I'm going with the wise men because they brought the gifts. Uh, the wise men. And um, how many wise men were there? Eh. Hmm. Three gifts, it doesn't say how many wise men there were, okay? There were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, what, what did Mary and Joseph do with these very, very expensive gifts that they'd been given? Well, maybe that's what provided the resources, because remember when Joseph has the dream that he's got to get down to Egypt? Maybe that's what provides the funds that they needed to go down to Egypt, live a couple of years down there, and then come back later. Just a possibility. And how did, these, how did these magi from the east figure out, I mean, a star? How did they figure that stuff out? Unless they were magi who had learned under the school that Daniel started. And if you read the book of Daniel, he talks all about when the kingdom of God is supposed to begin and when the Messiah is supposed to come onto the earth. Is it possible that men from the east, because that's where Daniel was in Babylon, that they had actually read the sacred writings that the Jews weren't paying attention to, but these men from the east had read it and said, said a king is coming out of Israel and it's going to be in the time frame of the Romans because that's what Daniel taught us. Just a thought. Anyway. So I come back to my story. Oh, hmm. I'm all right. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, <laughs> so, so Jesus is serving, is serving in submission to the Father until he can begin his ministry. 
um, that's something that's not in the Bible. I would just like to say to you that Jesus actually fulfilled all kinds of things that are in the Bible because Jesus becomes the perfect Israel. This might get a little confusing, but let me see if I can toss this one out to you. Remember when, uh, remember when the nation of Israel was in Egypt around the time of Moses, what was happening to all the little kids? Why did Moses' mother put him in this basket? They were killing the children. What happens when Jesus is born in Bethlehem because Herod is mad at the Magi because they didn't tell him where the, baby, the, the Christ child was? Killing all the children. Um, the Exodus tells the story of the children of Israel coming what? Out of coming out of Egypt, exactly. What does, where does uh, Mary and Joseph have to take baby Jesus? He's just, a, just an infant, maybe one or two years old. They had to take him to Egypt to hide from Herod. And it was not until Joseph has another dream. Can you imagine all the directions that Joseph got from God were in dreams? That's the only direction he got, a dream in the night. But he was taking care of the son of the living God. Wow. So they spent some time in Egypt, they came out of Egypt, and, and the New Testament even tells us out, uh, that, that that was to fulfill the word that says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now think about this. Um, the, the nation of Israel spent how many years in the wilderness? Forty years, exactly. How many days did Jesus spend in the wilderness? Forty days in the wilderness. What was given to the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness? The law. When, the, when Satan comes and tempts Jesus, how does Jesus respond to each of the three temptations from the devil? Not just from Scripture, but he responds from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and chapter 8, which are the exact words that Moses gave the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness. So he responds with the exact same thing. Um, so uh, how, many, how many tribes were there for the nation of Israel? How many disciples did Jesus have? After, after uh, uh, Moses was trying to you know, run this whole nation and, and his, uh, his uh, father-in-law says to him, hey, this is too crazy, you need some other people. How many people do they, does, do they be, 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 words, words. Um, I'm trying to go fast. How many elders, 70 elders, after Jesus sends out the 72, uh, after Jesus sends out the 12, not 72, some of our translations say 72, but the oldest manuscripts say he sent out the 70. So I would suggest to you that the life of Jesus follows completely the whole nation of Israel because Jesus is the true Israel. He follows it completely and fulfills it completely, fulfilling the law completely. So God's covenant, the new covenant, is not so much with us as it is with Jesus. That's why there's no wrath in the new covenant. <laughs> because Jesus filled it per perfectly. So all we have to do is be in Christ. That's all. There's, there's nothing else you have to do. You just have to be in Christ. Christ, and then what do you gain? You gain all the benefits that Jesus died for. What did you have to do to get that? Nothing. What can you do to get that? Even if you wanted to do something? Nothing. 
There's nothing that you can possibly do. And so um, we're kind of seeing this pattern, aren't we? We're seeing that, um, you know, often people come into the church and they come in with kind of a slave or a servant mentality. You ever notice that? What do I have to do to earn God's approval? Now, I'll be honest, the folks who come into the church with a servant and slave mentality are awesome in the church because, boy, do they work hard. They just sign up for every ministry. They work their tails off. They're in the nursery. They're in the Sunday school. They're in the kitchen. They are doing, 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 doing. But why are they doing so hard? Because they don't know who they are in Christ. But Jesus says in John 15, 15, he says, um, he says uh, I no longer call you slaves. I now call you friends. Jesus says friends. He goes, because you know what I'm doing. You know my, what I'm about. So the process is they started with slaves or, or servants. Now you move into this place of friendship with God. And some of us have stepped out of that place and we've moved into the friendship place where we're a little bit closer to God. We understand him a little bit better. And some of us think that's the end of the process, but that's not the end of the process. Because when we move into Paul and we read in Galatians and Ephesians, the passage I just read to you, what does Paul call us? Sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus. Okay, just stop for a second. Are you saying to me that the inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who went to the cross, who died, who poured out his blood for the sins of the world, that everything that is his inheritance... I get two? That's what the Bible says. But you see, you can't, get, <laughs> you can't get that inheritance. Now I'm back to my story of being 13 and 30. You can't get to that place of inheritance until you understand that place of submission and what it really means to come underneath and serve. So you have to go through this process. Um, uh, how did I write this down? We can't receive our inheritance until we have a spirit of sonship and we learn sonship through submission and service. So at our church, um, you know, it's not uncommon. Our pastor is Pastor Bill, um, and he's you know, fairly well known. It's not uncommon for him to say to people, um, I'm not real interested in your vision. So imagine we're the school, okay, and we're all the students, right? And we've come to learn, and here stands, you know, Pastor Bill up here, this, you know, he speaks all over the world, and he goes, I really don't care about your vision right now. And that's like, he says, I'm more interested in finding out if you're here to serve my vision first. Now, is that arrogant? Is that selfish? No, it's not, because he knows, he knows what God has called him to in this place. And if you're not called to that, maybe there's a different place where you belong. But if you are called to that, he wants to see if you are loyal to the mission and vision of that house. And then once he sees that, he's all over releasing you to go after your mission and vision. But he has to see that first. And sometimes, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I pick on the young kids. I don't mean to. I love the young kids. So if anybody who's young here, don't, don't take it personal. But... Um, some of these young kids, you know, they think, well, I, I came to school for nine months and I served. Surely you're going to promote me to be the next big thing at Bethel Church, right? 
And I sit there and look at him. I said, nine months. You, you serve for nine, whoa, let's just, you know, let's just all stop and clap and give you a pat on the back. Way to go. You are, what a servant. You have, wow, you have been drugged through the mud in nine months. Has anybody served a little longer? It doesn't, nine months, it doesn't always happen that way, does it? Sometimes we have to go through a process, and I would like to suggest that all of us are in a process. And if we were to look at that process, just, just imagine with me in, in your mind for a second. Um, imagine a graph, okay? Kind of like a mountain range, okay? So on that graph, if we're going up, like if we're plotting your life, you understand what I'm saying? Here's time. We're kind of plotting out your life. It looks like a mountain range. The times that it's going up are the times that you feel that life is awesome. I, I'm doing what I was born to do on this planet, and that's amazing, and you're loving it, and you're thriving. And the times when the graph is going down are the times where you're like, what am I supposed to do on this planet? God, have you forgotten about me? God, what is going on? Why am I not doing anything? Do you understand? I'd like to suggest to you <laughs> that there's two callings upon your life. The first calling is actually to do something. And you've been given gifts and talents and anointings to do something. But I suggest that there's another calling, and that's a calling to be something. And I suggest that, that often God is more concerned about who he designed you to be than what he can get you to do. You know, Jesus said, you know, the people all, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're saying all this stuff, and they try to get him to stop, and he goes, hey, if they don't yell, the rocks will cry out. And I actually kind of think he meant it. Which leads me to conclude, it's not that hard for God to get stuff done. We kind of get this feeling like, oh, I'm so important, and i got to get it done. You are important. You're extremely important. But God cares more about what's going on in here than he cares about what you can do for him. Because he can find somebody to get that done, or he'll just come and do it himself. Just a thought. I'm assuming that's our lovely children upstairs. Not a, th like, yes. Bless you. So when I come back to my, I come back to the story of my life, and it took me a long, long time to realize that when God had moved us out of New Jersey and off to Bethel Church, that God didn't care a whole lot about what I did for him. He wasn't really concerned about my, what I was, my, my doing, that's what I call it, my doing call, the things I could do for him. But what I learned was that God was investing all kinds of energy in who I am. So even though my graph felt like it was going down, 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 we were about to crash and explode, God was all smiles. 
Because God was at work on the inside of me, transforming me to be a person that looks more like him. And if I'd have understood that, I'd have joined with him a whole lot sooner because all I was doing the whole way down this slide was grumbling and complaining. And if you read about the Israelites, God's not real fond of that. So down I slid. And meanwhile, God's like, oh, this is so good. This is such good stuff. We're going deep now. So how many of you have felt those seasons? Have you felt those downward slides where you're like, like, God, did you forget about me? Have you left me on this corner of the planet that you don't seem to care about anyway? I would suggest to you that maybe if you would change your focus and change your perspective just a little bit, you might find that the God of the universe is so concerned about you that he's investing all kinds of energy in your life right now. It's just not the way you wanted it to look. And you would par- if you would partner with him and say, okay, Jesus... How how can I join you? How can I come alongside of you? What, What are you working on in me? This is amazing. The God of the universe has turned his spotlight onto my heart. That's what his spotlight's on right now. I I thought it was all about me preaching and and me being up front and teaching and me being amazing and and me being on the streets and just fire, boom, bam, amazing. ah. And God's like, yeah, we'll get to that. But there's some more important stuff we got to take care of first. So if you realize that, and if you partner with that, and if you take joy in that, then, then you're going to be able to walk through that process that God has you on, and you're going to be able to see what rough edges he's, he's rubbing off. Um, what things about, what, this is what we talked about last night, what lies are you believing about him that he's trying to change so that you'll believe the truth about him? Because if I've, like my wife said, if, if we've got these underlying lies at the d- depths of our being and God starts pouring all this good ministry stuff up on top of us and bam, fire, woo, that's just a recipe for disaster, isn't it? How many times have we seen people crash and burn, but the real issue is something down here that never got dealt with? So God wants you and he wants me to get that stuff. So that he then can bring some of that other. But we're not, we're not going to a crash and burn place because we're not servants who are working for approval. We've moved over into this place of sonship and daughtership that we are working out of, out of a joyful recognition that God's already approved of me. So think about this. Can God love you more than he loves you right now? Is there something you can go do? What if you become Billy Graham and go save nations, you know, preach to millions? What if you become Reinhard Bonnke, you know, go after the whole nation of Africa? Is God going to love you more than he loves you at this moment in time? There's absolutely nothing you can do. Except receive that. (laughs) You need to receive that. You need to believe that. You need to bring that into your heart and your, your being and who you are. Um, just a couple of examples, because um, we see this in the Bible. It's not just, a, it's not just something I'm making up to, to tell a story here. Uh, look at the life of Joseph, okay? Joseph has these crazy dreams, doesn't he? Crazy dreams. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars all bow down to me, okay? Hey, tip. 
if you get a dream about people bowing down to you, don't tell your brothers and sisters, okay? Just bad plan. Um, so he tells his brothers, and they're like, heck no. So Joseph gets sold into slavery. Now, this man has a calling on his life, doesn't he? A genuine calling. I would suggest a calling to save a nation. But he gets sold into slavery. And uh, he goes into slavery. Uh, he goes into Potiphar's household. What's he do there? Excels in Potiphar's household, becomes number two in the household until what? He gets falsely accused. Down to the bottom again. He's now in the jail. What does he do in the jail? Excel. He even interprets the dreams, right, for the bread, the, the cupbearer and the other bread, bread baker man. Yes, gingerbread man. And, um, and they, go, they go to Pharaoh, and what do, what do they do? They forget. Can you see Joseph's life? Downhill, a little bit up downhill, a little bit up downhill. <laughs> Why? Because there was something going on in here that Joseph hadn't quite got sorted out. Maybe he was so hung up on he was, he was the special one because he had the special coat that he didn't realize uh, some of these other things about humility and submission and the things I've been talking about. God had to work that out before he could become the man to save a nation. Uh, look at Moses. Moses is called to be the lawgiver, isn't he? I mean, what an amazing call on this guy's life. He's called to be the lawgiver, and what does he do? He jumps into a dispute between two men, and what do they say? Who made you judge and ruler over us? A prophetic sign, wasn't it? A prophetic sign of what he was supposed to be, but he was jumping into it in the wrong way with the wrong attitude. So the man spends 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep, to train him to spend 40 more years in the wilderness with the sheep of Israel. <laughs> and it's not until that that he then becomes the lawgiver that he was called to be. So my suggestion to you is that, is that we all have to go through this process. Uh, we're at different stages of the process, but you are in the process. And I just, by way of encouragement, would encourage you that, you know, my, our process has begun to see some up, which is, well, that's really fun too, Okay. And so, you know, just less than a year ago, you know, uh, I get called in and they say, hey, we want you to be, you know, our lead Bible instructor. They've never even had that job before. People would ask me years ago, what would you like to do at Bethel Church? I said, man, I would love to be able to just teach the Bible. I, I would just love it. But they, they don't even have a job. There was, there, I, I, couldn't even, I couldn't even pray for somebody to lose their job. No, I wouldn't have done that. Um, <laughs> But I, I couldn't even do that because it didn't exist. And I didn't think they had value for it because I thought they had enough people. And then they called me in. They said, we're, you know what? We're going to create a job. What do you do? We don't know. Teach the Bible. Just figure it out. Just go teach it to the students. Just whenever you get a chance, teach the Bible. And I'm like, I can do that. I can do that all day long. I can teach the Bible. And so now it's my dream job. I do whatever I, no, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> but I teach the Bible whenever I want. So, um, yeah, there's some other stuff here. <clears throat> yep, there's other stuff there. You're in God's process. Sometimes God brings things into your life. He may bring people into your life that you may find challenging. God may, may, he may have brought that person there, not because he wants you to work out a few things. Turn your love on. Have his heart 
for people who are not like you. But then sometimes in life, bad stuff happens, doesn't it? Anybody have bad stuff happen in their life? I've had some bad stuff happen in my life, okay? Bad stuff happens. Is that from God? I don't believe so for a second. That's not from God. But God is so big and so amazing and so powerful that he can even take the things that the, that the enemy has brought into your life and God can even leverage those things to transform who you are and make you and me more like him. So we're in the process. And I would encourage you to embrace the process. <laughs> embrace it. God, I'm so excited that I am doing nothing for the kingdom right now because that must mean you're working on me. Wow, amazing. What can I do to come alongside of you in this process and become more like the king? What do I got to do? How, how, you want me to serve? What do you want me to do? You want me to be humble? What do you want me to do? You want me to go clean toilets? Now be careful with that prayer. Just be real careful with that one, okay? Because he, he has a habit of taking things literally. God's far more concerned about who you are on the inside and about what you believe than he cares about what you do for him. We don't work for approval. We work from approval. And once we get to the place that we realize that God loves you so much that there's nothing, you don't have to do a single thing for the rest of your life. And God's love will be the same for you as it is right this moment. Once we get that, you're going to be amazing. <laughs> you're going to be awesome. Because you'll do anything. Whatever God might put in front of you, you do, I'll do it. Not because you have to, because you want to. Do you realize the power of Almighty God that could be flowing through your life once you realized who you are in Christ? Once you realize that you're a little Christian, Christian, that kind of came out weird, but you know what I mean. Wow, the power that could be flowing through us. But we've got to get some of this stuff sorted out first. We've got to get some of this stuff sorted out first. So for closing, let me just ask this. Um, you know, is there anybody in the room that you feel like, wow, yeah, I'm not going to be specific here, but let's, God's talking to me about this. I hear it. I want you to stand up. We're just going to pray for you where you stand. But if God's talking to you on this, just stand up right now, and we will pray for you quick. All right, and if you're, uh, you see somebody near you, you could, uh, you're the ministry team, okay? So I need you to just reach out a hand. You could lay a hand on their back. You could just reach your hand their direction. And uh, I want you to help me pray for these folks, okay? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. God, we just come to you and we admit that, uh, that your ways are not our ways and, and your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. And God, there are so many times that we don't understand what you're doing in our life. God, there are so many times that we just don't get it and we're confused and we can very easily, God, become discouraged and disappointed and depressed. But God, right now, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help every one of us to change our minds. 
Jesus, help us to change our thoughts. Jesus, that we might look at ourselves and at people and at circumstances the way you're seeing them. God, I pray you would show us where you're working in the process of our lives. God, just show us what you're up to. God, we're going to stop asking the question, what can I do for you? (laughs) And we're going to start just asking the question, Jesus, what are you up to here? What are you up to, God? What are you trying to show me about yourself? What are you trying to show me about who you are and who I am as a son or a daughter? So, God, I pray right now that you would touch us afresh with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, just fall like a gentle rain. Just fall upon us, Lord. And Lord, wash away that bad thinking. Wash that off of us, Lord. And replace it, Jesus, with your thoughts, with your heart, with truth. Replace it with the truth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Rich. Wow, is that a good word?